Illinois started its medical cannabis program in 2015, I believe. The barriers of entry to get a license at that point were ridiculous. You had to have, it was a $50,000 application fee, non-refundable. You had to have $250,000 in a reserve account that was not to be used for operations. You had to just be able to show that you had $250,000 in an account that you weren't planning on using to run your business. I didn't even apply for that one. Fast forward to 2019, when the state of Illinois released their adult use or recreational licenses, as they're also called, they released that under what they called social equity guidelines. So Illinois, every state in the nation has had a failed war on drugs, cannabis being only one of the many drugs that have been criminalized over the years. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I'm so glad you're here with me for another episode of the podcast. I think I'm on episode 68, which is super crazy. I'm so appreciative for this opportunity. You can't see my face right now, but I'm literally grinning ear to ear. I just think one step at a time is a motto that I reflect on a lot, and it really has been a joy to be producing this podcast for y'all. So I hope that These episodes have been informative and rewarding. So today we are tuning into one man's story and journey of navigating his state's recreational adult use cannabis license lottery system. Wow. Say that 10 times fast. (laughs) I had come across Michael Malcolm in a few different circles. I first saw him hang out in the early days of the cannabis clubhouse craze and then started paying attention to his social media account, Weed Travel Food. And then about a month ago, saw a blog post he had written on Weed Travel Food that was gaining a lot of attention from the industry and our peers. He was sharing about his experience navigating the Illinois Cannabis Adult Use License Lottery System, and the content he wrote about had me literally gobsmacked. I was just like so distraught to hear how it was playing out in Illinois. And I think that's an aspect of the podcast that I personally appreciate. It's always good to get a good understanding of how other states are legalizing because we always hope our state does it in the quote unquote right way, but there's really just no telling how, when, what, or why a state's going to do their rollout the way that they do. So of course, Illinois is one of those states that I personally haven't been to since recreation was legalized, but it's on my radar And a lot of MSOs are coming out of Chicago, like Cresco Labs, Verano Holdings, and Green Thumb Industries, to name a few. Due to COVID, Illinois had a delay in issuing their licenses, but when it came time to holding the lottery, things kind of spiraled. And in terms of who they awarded licenses to compared to the expectations required to even qualify to apply in the first place, there was just a lot of discrepancy and 
basically, you know, I'll let Mike tell his story, but it's a crazy good one. And let me tell you, he stays so positive throughout all of the setbacks. I really hope you'll appreciate his approach because again, these stories are meant to help prepare us, all of us to help shape the industry in whatever way we can so that yes, there are rules and regulations, but that we all have a fair chance at participating in an industry we love. So without further ado, let's welcome Mike to the show. My name is Michael Malcolm. I am from Chicago. And as my day job, by day, I'm a realtor. I've been working in real estate on and off for over 20 years now since I was out of high school. But the way I got into the cannabis industry is kind of funny. So I've always had a long history with cannabis, always been a can of sewer of sorts. My name is Word I like to use. And so growing up here, I had a lot of friends that were in the traditional industry, let's call it. And so like one thing about me is I've always really just been about like my flavors, my terps. I didn't even know it was called, it was terpings at the time, but I was always about the flavor. I was always about the freshness and I was always about getting a really clean smoke. So like I was that guy in my neighborhood that stopped smoking blunts at a young age. Like I was like papers only. Like and I was the first one like bringing vaporizers around my friend, dryer vaporizers and stuff. People didn't even know what the hell it was. So that was always kind of <laughs> that was kind of like the background. Like I used to, for lack of better words, I used to pick packs for like my guys that were in the traditional industry. So they would get stuff in, and I'll say, eh, I don't like this. I do like that that type of thing. So that's kind of like my going way back with cannabis. But the way I got into the legal industry is, again, I'm a realtor. And a few years ago, one of my longtime real estate clients got into the cannabis industry out in Colorado. And we were really great friends. We used to do a lot of deals together and smoke weed after we cut the checks. All the business was done. And so he was like, man, you should come out to Colorado. I'm about to make this move. And I was like, I don't have to go to Colorado to smoke weed. This is, again, 2013, 2012, something like that. But uh, again, so he goes out to Colorado and I always was into like traveling. I've always been into travel. I've always been a foodie. And so a lot of my friends and family were like, oh, you should do like a travel blog or you should do a food blog. And I'm like, well, I'm not a blogger. I just like to do what I do. And some people are like, oh, maybe you should do a weed blog. And I was like, uh, no, but when I saw legalization on the horizon here in Illinois in 2018, I thought maybe I could do legal weed travel and food blog. And I was like, huh, that might be interesting. So I started doing research and I was like, what does a food blog even look like and who's doing this already? And so I came across an article in GQ magazine that was, it said Al Harrington wants to be NBA's first cannabis millionaire or uh, something like that, marijuana millionaire or something like that. And I was like, and so in the article, he kept talking about Colorado is where the culture is. He's like, Colorado is where the culture is. Colorado is where the culture is. And I was like, Colorado, like everybody knows it's California is where the culture is. Right. But he kept saying Colorado in the article. And that made me think about my friend who had went out to Colorado a few years prior and had got into the cannabis industry. And so I called my friend right there on the spot as I was reading the article and I just, you know, called him and I said, Hey, how's business? And he said, Oh, everything's great. We're in Colorado. We're in Oregon. We're in California. We're in Michigan. We're, I said, damn, bro. Like, how did you move so fast? Like what happened? And he was like, Oh, I don't know if I told you, but my business partner is Al Harrington. <laughs> now, Shada, when he told me this, I still had the article up on my computer screen. Like I literally was reading the article 
picked up my phone and called him, right? And he just so happened to pick up right away. Sometimes he calls me later. How serendipitous. Crazy. He picked up right away. And I'm looking at the screen. I said, Biola, that's your company? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, bro, I'm reading about you right now. Like, what the hell? He's like, oh, you must have seen the GQ magazine article. So that's like what started everything. Because once I saw it, that was kind of like the push that I needed to, that's what I needed to know that this was the right direction that I was headed on. All right. Because I really was like, I had no clue what I was doing. And I still don't know what I'm doing (laughs) at the time. But I don't think any of us do. Yeah, half the time. But so that's kind of like what kicked it off. And a lot of things happen from them. But long story short, now I'm a cannabis consultant. I work with several companies across the country, both MSOs and small startups, people that are just getting. I work on everything from product development to marketing and advertising to license acquisitions to community engagement and outreach initiatives. So I do that. I also am the founder of the We Travel Food brand and website. I can check that, wetravelfood.com. I'm also a part owner of another cannabis brand out of California, which is Cronja Culture. My partners, we currently have product in, what, 22 stores in five states, ancillary products, these leather rolling trays. And we all, my partners also have manufacturing, distribution, delivery, and co-packing licenses in LA. So I have that going on. I also teach at Olive Harvey College, one of the city colleges of Chicago here in Illinois. I teach cannabis marketing and branding for Olive Harvey, and I am a social equity applicant here in Illinois. I currently have 10 applications, and that's going through the process right now to determine who's going to get licenses here for dispensaries. So I got a lot on my plate. (laughs) You're doing a lot, but it's really badass to kind of hear your journey and your story because Again, I think the sentiment of this podcast is just to find some people who are equally doing interesting things in cannabis. Maybe it's not the same, but it's like, man, it's really cool to just hear what you're up to and how you kind of got your feet wet in the industry. And so to press into it a little bit more, when I was introducing myself before we were recording, I kind of highlighted that we met kind of low-key originally on Clubhouse, which shout out to Clubhouse. I think it's kind of had its heyday and maybe some lower days there and here, but I think that getting connected in the community is something that's like super important to me just to be able to build these bridges of understanding. Again, what's going on in Illinois is definitely different than what's happening in Texas, but being able to reach over the aisle and get to hear someone's story and kind of learn from the lessons that they've gone through, I think is really important and really powerful. And so that's where I first kind of, you know, got connected to you and checked out your food blog. And my background a little bit too is I used to be a food blogger. I still very much love food, but definitely like kismet in the same content creator kind of vein. It's just like, I love these things in life, traveling food, very similar to you and saw an opportunity to start creating content with it. Now, again, I'm still in Texas, so I don't have legality behind me, but <laughs> I like cannabis. Oh, and don't, so let, don't let that stop you. <laughs> it does. I mean, I talk about CBD and like your quote, like cannabis, yeah. but it's definitely just kind of existing in that kind of factor you're in like kind of like that one arm opportunity or something but there's like so many other things going on so many other like hands in the pot and so the point is i had been familiar with you checked out your stuff obviously like love your passion and spirit but didn't really stay connected to you until i saw some posts that you had made was getting a lot of traction 
And that post was about kind of what was happening from your own personal experience. I know you just mentioned that you have 10 licenses in the kind of pool for Chicago licensing. And I wanted to kind of pick that apart a little bit because it got a lot of attention. I saw so many of my peers in the industry just kind of resharing it. And again, I think for the listeners' sake, sometimes we live and exist in isolation. Maybe we're in a legal state and we're like, oh, we're in California. Like, who cares what's happening in like Chicago or Illinois or what's happening in Austin, Texas? But I do believe in kind of having a good understanding at at the market, like at a high level. And so when people come to me, they're always like, oh, are you going to open up a marijuana dispensary when Texas legalizes? Or they're maybe in another state and they're listening to the podcast and they're like, oh man, I really want to get into the industry. Oh, I'm from Phoenix and Arizona just went legal. I'm like, how do I get a license, Shada? And I'm thinking, it's really unfortunately not that easy. I think we see that happening with different states legalizing. Yeah. I think Arizona being a good one, they mm-hmm. legalize pretty quickly mm-hmm. and open up their market pretty quickly versus like New York legalized, but their program doesn't actually roll out, I think until 2022, 2023. Yeah. So legalization and getting to operate legally in an industry is a buzzword, I feel, or like a buzz term that gets thrown around, but like actually implementing it, actually going through the process is something that is still really mystifying to a lot of people. And so again, when I saw your post, I just saw the rallying of the community kind of behind your story and kind of what you were going through. And when I started reading other articles around what was happening in Chicago, specifically with licenses, I was just like, what the fuck? Like, I got to talk to Mike. I got to see from his perspective kind of what's going on. So if you can share with us, obviously your perspective of what the current situation is to the degree that you feel comfortable sharing, Sure, but kind of in addition to that, I'd love to hear from your perspective too, just what is going on with Illinois legalization? I mean, I know high level numbers, yeah. like you kind of mentioned it was legalized officially in like 2018, 2019, but mm-hmm. what did that look like? How long was medical before there was rec? Just what is the pulse of Illinois cannabis? And sure. then maybe dive into your experience going through the license process. Sure. No, and I appreciate you for all the kind words too. So yeah, for sure. Starting off, Illinois started its medical cannabis program in 2015, I believe. The barriers of entry to get a license at that point were ridiculous. You had to have, it was a $50,000 application fee, non-refundable. You had to have $250,000 in a reserve account that was not to be used for operations. You had to just be able to show that you had $250,000 in an account that you weren't planning on using to run your business. I didn't even apply for that one. Fast forward to 2019 when the state of Illinois released their adult use or recreational licenses, as they're also called. They released that under what they called social equity guidelines. So Illinois, every state in the nation has had a failed war on drugs, cannabis being only one of the many drugs that have been criminalized over the years. And so The way that Illinois qualifies people for social equity, there's three different ways you can qualify for social equity in Illinois. Number one, you either had to be arrested for cannabis or one of your immediate family members, mother, father, brother, sister, has been arrested for cannabis. You qualify for social equity that way. That is how I qualify for social equity because I was actually arrested for cannabis and I have a cannabis conviction on my record. All right. 
The second way that you can qualify for social equity is if you live in a certain area that has been determined by the state of Illinois to be disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. The third way that you can qualify for social equity in Illinois is if your company agrees to hire 51% of its employees from an area, from those disproportionately impacted area. So we can start with the fuck-ups right there, right? So let's go backwards and then go the other way, right? Qualifying based off of who you claim that you're going to hire, right? So that means that you, Shada, that do not live in Illinois, you can create a company apply for social equity and promise that you're going to hire people that live in rough neighborhoods in Chicago. And now your company is considered social equity. Just based off, we call it the slave master clause, right? Because just because you claim that you're going to hire somebody from these areas, well, for one, it's like you're intentionally going after certain people, right? And then yet there's no real connection there. So that's one that was like the first messed up. The, the other thing is, and this is something that I'm seeing as I'm going through the process, is that the majority of people that qualify for social equity didn't qualify like myself and one of these licenses. They didn't qualify because they were arrested for cannabis or their immediate family members had been. They qualify based off of where they live. Now, there's some truth to that, that neighborhoods have been targeted and people suffer because of that. There's no doubt in my mind because of that. Neighborhoods are over heavily policed, over-policed. There's a lack of resources. People are stigmatized and uh, discriminated against based off of the neighborhoods that they live in and may or n- may not be harassed by the police because they live in these neighborhoods. So no doubt about that. But what's also true, I know this as a realtor, as is the majority of these neighborhoods, especially in Chicago, that were determined to be disproportionately impacted areas by the war on drugs, they've been heavily gentrified. So when people that qualify for social equity, because they live in those areas, don't look like the people who you would ideally think are the people that that law was meant to target, right? Which are brown and black people, right? That's not really what happened. (laughs) A lot of people qualify because they live in these areas and these areas have like million dollar condos, million dollar two bed condos in them. It's like, and again, I know this because I saw the app. I mean, I saw the map that where the boundaries were defined by the state. And I also am a realtor. So I know what the property values are. I know how much money you have to make to live in those neighborhoods. Right. It's one of those things where hindsight is all 2020. But those are definitely things that I think need to be prioritized. And then the first way I spoke about qualifying is based off of your criminal record. The flip side to that is that someone like me qualifies for social equity because I had a small, small amount of cannabis on my arrest record. But if you have a large amount of cannabis on your arrest record, say like a felony, you don't qualify for social equity. (laughs) So... Illinois did this whole talk about how we were going to be progressive and all this other stuff like that. And because the state passed the social equity license program without it being voted in, it's something that the governor did on his own and just made it a part of law. So that was like the good thing about it. The bad thing about it is that is all the fallout that's been happening since. So 
one of the biggest issues with the program that I've seen is something that I mentioned in the post that you were talking about is that it was never really set up from the beginning for social equity as you would think of it, right? People who maybe not, don't have the most means, they don't have a lot of money, right? But they are qualified, right? It wasn't set up for those people. What the state did was the state allowed applicants to put in an unlimited amount of applications for a limited amount of licenses. And they also allowed those companies to win multiple licenses in that limited license round. I'll say that one more time. The state allowed people to put in an unlimited amount of applications for a small number of licenses and then allowed those people to win multiple licenses in that limited licensing round. So what happens is that you have companies that came in and there were, you know, a lot of things happen, but let's keep it simple. The first lottery, there was a total of 55 licenses given out. And there were companies in that round that won 12 licenses, <laughs> right? Now, of course, do you think that those are lower income social equity, qualified social equity applicants? No, these are large, huge companies that came in. I had the list uh, because the other thing that the state did was they had lotteries, right, for to do the license, to award the licenses. And before the lotteries, we got the list of who was going to be in the lottery and how many slots they had. There were sheets where the entire sheet was one company, that many license, that many applications in. So what this really amounts to is that this was a, the state is going to say that they tried to do something for equity, for, you know, social equity. This was a cash grab for the state of Illinois. They had no intention of true equity. They wanted money, which I can't blame them. The state is broke. But what they did was they played off of the hopes of people who thought they really had a chance. I'll be honest, I didn't think I had a chance from the very beginning. And I say that because of another thing that the state did, which was the only way to get 100% of the available points on the application is if your company is 51% owned and controlled by a veteran. Now, that doesn't make sense for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is a social equity round, and I told you already how social equity was defined, right? At no point in that conversation that our veterans talked about. Now, I hate that I have to say this in every interview that I do. I have nothing against veterans, right? I have nothing against veterans. My father is a Marine. My business partner is a Marine. Lots of fans and friends and family of mine are active duty. I have no problem with them being in the industry. I have no problem with them getting licenses. But the intent of this bill was not for veterans. And what we're seeing, so when the state has it so that the only way that you can get 100% of the available points is if 51% of your company, the majority, is owned and controlled by a veteran, that means I knew from the time that I looked at the bill, at the application, that even though I was qualified, right, because I'm a social equity applicant, I qualify as a social equity applicant, and I know that I'm qualified based off of the everything that I've been doing around the industry, I knew that realistically I had zero chance to win because I'm not a veteran and I 
didn't want to give 51% of my company and control over to a veteran just so that I could get a license. And so those were kind of like the most obvious things from the very start to let me know that this wasn't really about social equity. The state wanted certain people to get licenses, and that's what we're seeing. If you just do just some quick statistics, the vast majority of veterans are white men. Just the truth. The vast majority of veterans are white men. Veterans comprise, of, I think, the total 12% of the Black community are veterans, Only, but only 1% of the entire population are veterans, right? So the numbers just don't add up. And here in Illinois, what's happened is the vast majority of the licenses have gone to veterans. The state issued 40 craft grow licenses. All 40 went to veteran-owned companies. The funny thing about that today is that today the judge is supposed to rule whether or not this is constitutional. Again, I just told you all 40 licenses went to veteran-owned companies. In no way should that ever even happen, right? And I'm sure the vast majority, I don't know every single one of the 185 dispensary licenses that were given out. I don't know the makeup of every single team, but what I'm seeing from the people that I've talked to is the vast majority of those also went to veterans. So it's hard to say that this was, it's hard to call it constitutional because I don't think you can give any one group anything. You can't make it so that any one group is the same reason that the state can't say, oh, these licenses are for black people or these licenses are for brown people or these licenses are for women. You can't do that because it's discrimination, right? And to me, it's kind of clear cut, but considering who won these licenses, which mostly are super, super well-connected people and large corporations, considering those are the people that won, I find it hard to believe that even though it's painfully obvious that it's discrimination that occurred, I doubt that the judge is going to reverse anything today. I just don't have, I have zero faith in the system. So we had, okay, so because of the veteran point issue, there was a lot of protesting and stuff that happened last year because when the state initially announced the winners last year, because last year the state was only going to give out 75 dispensary licenses. When they announced the winners for the lottery for, for the 75 licenses, there were only 21 companies that qualified to go after 75 licenses. People went nuts here. <laughs> like, there's no way. So kudos to the state. I will say something nice about the state. The state said, okay, this is wrong. This wasn't our intention. We're going to go back and we're going to try to address the issues. So what they did was they added more licenses and more lotteries. They added two new lotteries. One lottery was for people. Oh, so they added another lottery. And so the first lottery was for as long as you scored 85%, then you got into the lottery. And because, again, the only way that you that the those 21 companies that got into that first lottery initially, they had perfect scores. They were all veteran owned companies and people were like, hey, all these licenses are going to go to veterans and they're only going to 75 licenses are going to go to 21 companies. How is that fair? Right. So the state said, OK. We're going to reduce the threshold that you need to qualify for the lottery. Now, again, 
we were only talking about two points out of 252. Two points went to veteran, were the veteran points, right? We're talking about two points. Instead of dropping it down to say, okay, you still need to have a solid application, they dropped it down and say, okay, you still need to score 95%, 96%, something like that. They dropped it down to 85%. So now they flooded the licenses. So now all of a sudden, some of the things that I worked really closely on like the community engagement aspect and what I want to do for my community and how I plan on giving back, all of a sudden, those points don't really matter as much because all you need to do is score 85% to get into the lottery, right? So that was one lottery. And then you flood it with not just the top people, but also with like B minus people, <laughs> like like B scores. So you got a bunch of B grade people in there, and then you have some a bunch of top scores in there. I just referenced my final score was a 95%. So that's what I'm saying. Like, like a lot of people got into that lottery who had no idea what they were doing. Okay. But anyway, so that was that. And then the second lottery that was added, they added that for what they call true social equity. And true social equity are people who were either arrested for cannabis in the past. It was the first two. That third category, based off of who you're going to hire, qualifying based off of who you're going to hire. Those people were not included in the second lottery round. So there were two lottery rounds that were given out 55 licenses each. And then there was a third lottery round that was still the original lottery round of the 75 licenses that were going to be given out. And the only way you're going to you qualify for that lottery round was still if you had the veteran points. And that lottery round had the largest pool of licenses as well. 75 licenses available in that lottery round, 55 in the first two lottery rounds. So, okay. So, notice a whole lot, but I'm trying to give people an understanding because what's really important about this is that as I rail against the system, rage against the machine, I want to acknowledge the fact that the state did, they did address some of the issues. I don't want to say they tried because they still failed miserably. They addressed some of the issues. But again, the problem is one of my biggest problems were, was that when they added these two additional lottery rounds, they still allowed all the companies, the veteran owned companies in the first two lotteries. And then not only that, not only did they allow them in it, they held the smaller lotteries first. Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister, so we are family-owned and women-owned. We do operate a brick-and-mortar in Austin, so if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide, and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code to be blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks. And let's go back to the show. You had the absolute worst odds if you were in that first lottery, but just terrible odds. And then the odds for the second lottery were a little bit better, but not much. The odds for the third lottery were better. They did expand it from 21 companies to 
maybe a hundred or something like that. I don't know, but the odds were still a lot better in that third round because there were a lot less people in that third round and there were a lot more licenses available. So bottom line, I didn't win any, <laughs> right? 185 licenses given out, 10 applications I put in, didn't win one. And that's where we are right now. So after the second lottery and I saw I wasn't going to win, I didn't win anything. That's when I wrote that article that you're, I wrote that piece that you're talking about for my website. And I just basically said what I initially thought that I never really had a chance to win. That's why one of the ways that I, the way that I decided to apply, I had a lot of friends and family that wanted to apply with me. And I just knew that I didn't want to spend their money on something that I just didn't think was realistic. Like I just didn't think that the state was going to do it. So I had a couple of MSOs here in state MSOs that were interested in working with me to be a brand ambassador for them. And this was, again, in 2019. And at the time, they were saying that they couldn't pay me because adult use market didn't happen until 2020. So it was 2019. They said, hey, we can't pay you in cash right now, but we'll give you free weed for you to be our brand ambassador for us. And we'll talk about payment in 2020. And I told them, I said, well, since you can't pay me in cash, why don't you help me write my application and be my partner with me on this? You put the money up. I'll do my thing and we'll partner on and go after these licenses together. They agreed. So I partnered with Columbia Care, which is a large MSO, and put in 10 applications. And they know my attitude because I talked to them afterwards and I talked to them, of course, throughout this entire process. And I was like, the reason that I partnered with you guys is because I didn't think I had a chance because I never thought it was going to be fair. But it's almost like voting. If you don't vote, you can't complain. So if you're not in the game, it's hard to talk about all the problems in the game if you're not in it. Right. So I had to find a way to get myself in the game with as little money out of my own pocket. I still spend a lot of money on my own, out of my, on my own pocket, just uh, paying for my attorneys to help me negotiate the terms of my deal with, which I spent a lot of time into because initially I thought that that was something that was going to really matter to the state of Illinois. What your operating agreement is, is like, right? What type of, what are the terms that you have agreement with your, your partners, right? Do you really have control over your company? And who does what and who has this type of power? As far as I can tell, none of that stuff matters. The state, again, the state just, they're like, whatever. They're just trying to rush this through as fast as they can possibly can right now. But just two things that are super odd about what happened. The state is doing everything it can right now to push this along and get these licenses out. The thing is that... There were a lot of lawsuits throughout this process from different groups of people who were unhappy about certain things throughout the process. Every single person, every group that filed a lawsuit has now won a license, right? So the odds of that happening and it just being random are really funny. Like I said, the state does not want any more hesitation. They don't want any more holdups with the stuff. They want these stuff, this stuff to go out. So like the, there were two companies that filed uh, lawsuits because of the veteran suit, both companies won licenses <laughs> in the lottery round. So it just so happened, just coincidence, that was weird. And then the other thing that I think is just disgraceful on behalf of the state that the state did was that they held all the lotteries in, in secrecy. So it was zero transparency. 
There's no video or audio of the lotteries actually being actually taking place. The lottery was ran by the Illinois lottery, like that you would like buy lottery tickets from. <laughs> like that same lottery system is the lottery system that they gave out billions of dollars worth of licenses, right? They gave hundreds of millions, not billion dollars worth of licenses. It was all done in secret. We just got a li- we knew when the lottery was gonna the day that the lottery was gonna happen, and then IDFPR just released a list of winners. You have so I'm not gonna claim that anything happened, and I don't have any proof of that. I also don't have any proof that I lost or that anybody won either, though. So I would definitely say that for any state coming online is that if you want people to have trust in your process, transparency is key because in January 2020. The MSOs got had a lottery for their second location. The state issued gave out licenses for MSOs before the social equity. This was in January 2020. When the state held that lottery for the MSOs, they did that in City Hall. People were allowed to come. I was in the room for the MSO lottery. I was in the room. The people were in the room. The balls were spun and drawn in front of everybody. It was cameras there. The MSOs did not let the state play with them like that, right? They went, on, they went for all the sneaky stuff, right? And for the state to treat its constituents worse than they treat these large multinational, multi-state companies, to me, it's, like I said, it's disgraceful. And then, like, now if you say something like, well, what lottery? It's like, oh, are you trying to talk down on our process? And are you trying to call us? It's like, well, why would you do it in secret? <laughs> why would, how, why, how come these large companies get treated better than people like myself? I don't understand why they would hold it in secret. So I just have zero faith in this entire process here in Illinois. It was the, I called it a scam, but I called it a scam more so not because of all the secrecy and the stuff that was hidden, but just because. It was never intended to be equitable. It was all about the state getting as much money out of people as they possibly could and promising some equity. And sure, there's going to be there's a few true social equity people who won. There are definitely some. I don't want to I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade. There's definitely some true social equity. It's just not many. It's just not many. And I know that there is very few people who won who actually have a criminal record for weed. I'm going to go on a limb and I don't care. I'm sure they're going to be mad, but I'm sure the vast majority of these people who won know nothing about weed and they were not part at all part of the traditional market. They know nothing about weed. I sold weed to people who won licenses. I sold weed to people who won licenses, people who didn't know where to get it on their own. This is talking some years back. But some of the people I know, some of the people I know, a few of the people that won, some of the people that won, I sold them their weed <laughs> because they didn't know where to get it from. And now they have a license to sell weed. They never had no record. They don't have like they couldn't even know where to find it from. And now that's who is going to be who the licenses went to. In rent. <laughs> I mean, you shared so much. It's fucking one. I'm so sorry to hear that that is the reality of licensing in the state of Illinois. Does it surprise me? Unfortunately, no. The more conversations I have with people like yourselves reflecting different states that have gone through different steps towards legalization, both medical and recreation adult use, it's very appalling and really heartbreaking that 
it's all unfortunately about money. And yes, I do think that there are some, I like you, it's like, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. I don't want to say that there aren't good people who have succeeded to navigate, whether it's an individual brand or license or an MSO or just making headway in their state's process. But the reality is there is no clear playbook for how this is supposed to go down. And if you happen to be in a state or city that fucks it up, for lack of a better word, you like you want to work in cannabis legitimately, legally. You're going through the process. You're applying. You're doing the due diligence. I think it's really cool to hear how you kind of spun that opportunity with that MSO to get them to kind of support you, which again, I think from a benefit to the listeners, I know that there's a lot of different, I always say there's a lot of different ways to the top, but I think that because we're in cannabis, a lot of it is really unclear and how to kind of proceed and move forward. And so I I think it's really cool to hear these kind of new and interesting ways to navigate the system. And so kudos and credit to you because I'm sure nobody had really done that before you to be like, oh, this is a good idea. I should do it this way. It just kind of was an opportunistic, hey, let me take advantage of the situation to benefit me and benefit the brand because they were getting your ambassadorship. It wasn't like they lost out on you working with them, but it's like, hey, you can't pay me. Let me leverage this for my benefit when it comes time to me going through the process. But holy shit, it just is so frustrating because again, I think the podcast from my perspective is always try to speak about kind of the marketing aspect. But like I highlighted, you can't really market something if you don't have a business operating. And when we Mm. come down to the legality of being in the cannabis industry, getting a legitimate license is a part of that process. Maybe it's not, again, the straight, narrow path that everybody takes because I know in certain states and situations Maybe you don't need the license, but you're the partner or you can, you know, tack on to someone else's license. Let's say if you want to make edibles out of someone's flower yeah. or blah, whatever yeah. the case may be. So sure. the whole point is just to uncover different tactics and ways to navigate it. But man, it really blows when you hear the excitement of cannabis turning the page and coming into the limelight and trying to be legitimate. And then it's like, what the fuck is the point if I can't even legitimately be in the industry? And so that's where I then take that commentary of like, when people ask me about Texas, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? We don't even, I can't even project to tell you when I think Texas, I mean, I can't, I can project. I think Texas will (laughs) maybe have an open medical market because we have baby medical marijuana, but it's definitely nothing like medical in some of these other states, but we're two-year state. So We didn't have a lot of headway with this last legislative session, which just wrapped up in June. So now I have to wait a whole another two years. And I believe you're not going to have recreation until you have a proper medical program. So to me, I'm looking at four, six, eight years before you actually see medical marijuana in Texas to then even open the door for recreation adult use that I'm like, well, who's to say if they open it up, are we going to even have an opportunity? And then I had another guest on the show. Liz, she's from California. She currently is working with Canacraft, but has done stuff with MedMen and some other brands prior. Oh, Her episode, Liz. we yeah. were talking about, yeah, Lizzie Dell. She's yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Also Funny. from Clubhouse. Yeah. She was telling me about how when California was medical, certain brands who had established medical licenses and medical dispensaries, again, not that you need to like expect, and maybe it's our fault as the industry, maybe it's the state's fault as 
the law coming down, but like, Hey, I got the medical license. I'm a medical dispensary. Yeah. I'd like to anticipate when recreation happens, I can get a recreation license. Yeah. I've put the goodwill in. I'm in the community. I do all these programs. I'm this, that, and the other. And she's like, you wouldn't be surprised to hear half the companies that had medical licenses couldn't go get recreation licenses because they didn't get them. And it's like, just because you are here presently today does not guarantee you to still be here tomorrow or the next year or three years from now. And so it's, again, I always hate to be the bearer of some sort of truth on the podcast, but that is the impetus on to be blunt is like, let's talk about this shit. Cause it's the reality of working and operating in the quote unquote legal cannabis industry. So kind of a follow-up question I have for you is what was the licensing application like especially given how you said there were points associated to it. So it sounds like you had to not only invest like money in making sure like the agreements and the arrangements were set up appropriately. From my perspective, I don't really know what it's like to put an application together. Mm -hmm. And so considering that that's what you spent a lot of your time and energy doing to try to navigate this topic, like what was the license application like? What were they asking aside from obviously the social equity component of it? But knowing that like Illinois has so many licenses out there, obviously operating today, people have those applications awarded to them. They have licenses, they're in business. Like do these people have to say like, hey, we're going to do this, that, and the other for the state to maybe get it other than money? <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's the funny part, right? Because I, so I'll take the, so let me answer your question first. So what was the application process like? So there were several parts of the application process. It wasn't necessarily a simple process. The one good thing that the state of Illinois did was that, again, I want to try to be as fair as I possibly can. The one thing that the state of Illinois did that I liked was that they did not tie the real estate to the dispensary application. So a lot of states, you actually have to have your real estate under contract, either to purchase or a lease for you to apply for the application. But what the state of Illinois recognized is that there's always delays, there's always lawsuits, and it's a drain on finances if you have to hold on to real estate, especially through COVID. Now, no one saw COVID coming, but the state initially had it so that none of the dispensaries had to have their real estate under contract, which which was great. That wasn't the case for Craft Grow and for Infusion. They did have to have the real estate under contract or on the lease, but the state is now allowing people to move those licenses because a lot of people lost those during the pandemic. They couldn't hold on to those properties through the year and a, the little over a year of delay from the time that the licenses were supposed to be issued. So that's the kind of like larger look at it. Now, going into it, there were a lot of things in the application, everything from your floor plan, even though you didn't have to have the real estate, you did have to do it. You did have to have a floor plan. You have to have a security plan. You have to have a marketing plan. You have to have a disposal plan. You have to you can imagine people don't work in cannabis right now. So how do you know how to properly dispose of it, and there's ways to do it. So when I was before I had had my deal with the MSO, I spoke to a couple different people about helping me write my application. I got quoted anywhere between, I think I heard as low as thirty thousand, but that was like at that point that was such a low number. I didn't even think thirty thousand would have been a quality application. It was really more between fifty and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for most consultants to write applications. 
and the application fee was $2,500. So there is a dollar amount assigned to like what my application is with the company that I, they had to like assign a dollar amount just so we could figure out what things are worth and how much money was actually spent on writing my application. According to the my partners, my application, just the paperwork is worth $150,000. It took $150,000 to write and about 40 different people touched my application in some way, shape, or form. 40 people, about $150,000, again, security experts and all this other stuff. Now, I'm sure this is a large MSO with dispensaries already operating in Illinois. I'm sure they just copied and pasted a lot of stuff. But that's the dollar amount. That's what it cost. Didn't cost me that, obviously, because I worked that out in my deal. But that's just what it costs in general. And then, just like you said, do they have to do anything for the state? One of the, I didn't have to, because I had large MSOs that were already operating here in Illinois, I didn't have to focus on much as on the like floor plan and the disposal plan and the security stuff because they had all that. My main thing that I was, what that I was main, mainly concerned was our community engagement, which we all thought that, that was going to be like the big difference maker. Like, what's your own community engagement? So I created a an advisory board with some really big heavy hitters here in Illinois who, again, this is ridiculous because like the people who were like on my advisory committee are like some really big names who really could have done from Chicago, from Illinois, are already doing big things in Illinois. So for me to say that, oh, this person is going to help advise me, it wouldn't, it's not like some person I never met before in my life. These are like people that not only do I know personally, but also on a business level. I've done business with these people, real estate deals and things like that, and just been knowing people for a really long time. So I had a really great plan on what I wanted to do for Chicago. And I thought that was going to play a large part in the scoring system. And again, because they lowered it down to 85%, it ended up not really mattering at all. They gave 110 licenses out to people as long as they scored 85%. So again, that community engagement plan was maybe like two or four or five points, something like that. You could easily have gotten a zero and say, you're going to say, fuck the community and still got a license. (laughs) And then who knows if it was even a lottery to get the license. It's like, you think that you're trying to put your best foot forward to show some sort of initiative to giving back, to being really considerate of like, okay, if I'm the recipient of this license, this is what I can go do with this opportunity. And it's almost like the state's just like, well, we're going to leave it up to chance, but also not really. <laughs> not really. No, not really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and there's like I said, there's a lot of people. I don't fault. I actually, I don't make this clear too. I don't fault the winners right? They took advantage of a flawed system, right? I blame all of my heat is for the state. I will not support the most, I don't plan on supporting the majority of the winners just because most of them not even from here, right? And again, the people who won, the more vast majority of them, they don't really know what they're doing, you know? So, and then of course, it's all adult use cannabis anyway, and I'm a medical card holder, so I would never show up shopping in an adult use dispensary Anyway, adult use dispensary will be started January 1st of 2020 with adult use here in Illinois. I have not been in one dispensary since been over a year and a half. And it's not because of all this stuff. It's just because why would I pay? We have ridiculous taxes here in Illinois when it comes to cannabis. Yeah, medical versus adult use. Why would I pay 30% more for like trash from Verano, which is a 
absolutely horrible company here. I would never pay 30% more. I wouldn't buy, I wouldn't smoke their weed for free. I definitely wouldn't pay 30% more to smoke Verano weed. Like it's trash. Well, and the hard part too is, I mean, you're a hometown guy. I'm a hometown girl. You're representing your state. You want to believe that there's still some, again, like opportunity to be in the legitimate business of cannabis in your state. And I think from where I sit, there is a lot of just like devastation when things start to kind of unpack where you realize money does talk. And again, no shade to people who have the money who are maybe coming to it with like good intentions to make these investments in the industry. But that's always my fear. I mean, right now we don't really have, because we're only medical, we just got our first MSO in Texas. And it's just like, I never want to be like MSOs are the devil. And I also don't want to glorify MSOs because I do think that they can help push forward specifically in states that require legislation. Like in Texas, I see an MSO is having the resources to help kind of maybe help our medical program out, which is what I hope this MSO who just moved into Texas does. Mm. But in the back of my mind, it's always that fear of like, well, shit, these MSOs are going to come in from out of state and they're going to bring their resources and money. And then the people who actually represent the state who have been the stewards, maybe they come from the culture, maybe they come from the black market side of it. They now want to participate legally. And it's you and I know it's not like, oh, I want to be a legal contributor to the cannabis community. It's like, you still got to go through shit. I mean, it's a financial investment. It's an emotional investment. It's a, it's very like risk heavy. And so anybody like people come in my store, like, oh my God, it looks like so much fun. You're working in cannabis. I'm like, oh my God, you don't even know what the half of it is that we're going through. And so you really have to have this passion to be a part of it. And so it's like, if you're passionate, but maybe you don't have the upper hand of the money or the resources as some of these bigger entities. It's like, man, it just is really frustrating to hear that. Um, Again, I know it's not everybody, but seeing your state be taken over by these players who really don't care about the economy of putting that money back into your state, your community, the industry of cannabis in Chicago, Illinois. It's like, we don't give a shit. We operate in six states and we just want to make some more money and the state's going to give us this runway to go do it and kind of shit out of luck if you're not one of us. Yeah. I, I want to say something about the MSOs real quickly. One, I'm going to say something Please. good. I'm going to say something good about the MSOs is where I don't think the MSOs are the boogeyman we need to be the most concerned about. The MSOs have given themselves a bad name. They with some of the, the practices and the things that they've done, but they're not the big bad wolf everybody needs to be the most afraid of, those are the big pharma and the pharmaceutical companies that are, and and the really large corporate companies like Amazon, who kind of signaled earlier this year that they want to get into the space. That's right. If people think that it's hard dealing with these MSOs right now, wait until federal legalization figures itself out. And now all these large companies, these Pharmacy, Big Farm, and companies like Amazon, once they get into, they can legally touch cannabis, it is over. 
it's going to be game over. So, so that's one thing I will say is that the MSOs, there's a role that the MSOs can play in this industry moving forward. And then the other thing I will say, shit on the MSOs real quick, is that just because they are out of state or just because they're in state, they could be in state MSOs and still be absolutely terrible. A lot of people don't realize this, but Illinois is actually the headquarters of the three or four largest MSOs in the entire country. Cresco, GTI, and Pharmacan. Yeah, those are all Illinois-based MSOs. And we have other ones here like Verano that just went public a couple of months ago. And a few other ones, Columbia Cares, but this is an MSO state, but it's really a haven. And a lot of them, GTI is a Chicago-based company. Cresco is a Chicago-based company. Pharmacan is a Chicago-based company. So don't think just because they are out of state or they're in state that they're necessarily going to have your best interest in, in mind, because that's not necessarily the case. And then one last thing I will say is that When we talk about getting into the cannabis industry, I want people to know also that even though the license to be a licensed operator is kind of like that North Star, something that you all you aim towards, you don't necessarily need a license to be in the legal industry. It's a lot of I just told all the things I do. Right. I got I got my own brand. I'm technically in the industry. Why? Because. There's companies that want my brand in their store. There's dispensaries that want my brand in their stores. I don't grow weed. I don't grow weed. I don't sell weed. But yet they want weed travel food products in their stores, right? I teach cannabis marketing and branding. Technically, I'm teaching about I'm teaching about the legal. I'm not telling teaching them how to sell illegal weed. I'm teaching them about how to build their brands and to sell their products and the pitch and things like that. And same thing, building different brands and and working and consulting. No, I don't have a license, but one of my partners does have a license and they have me on a monthly retainer, right? So I get paid from the weed industry without having a license. And so I just want people to know that uh, Pep talked to myself right now, even though you don't have a license. That does not mean that you're not valued and that you are not in the industry. I told another friend of mine who had a podcast and he interviewed me and one time and then he interviewed me a few months later and his podcast was really growing. He was interviewing all these people. He's like, yeah, I really want to get into the cannabis industry. I'm trying to figure out a way to get in the cannabis industry. And he told me I was his very first interview. And then everybody he interviewed after that were all cannabis industry people. And I said, bro, you're in the industry. <laughs> I hate the, like, you are in. Like, it is not like, yeah, you don't have to, like, work for somebody. You, you don't have to be a bud tender. No, disrespect to bud tender. You don't have to be a bud tender or a trimmer or a grower or a licensed owner to be in the cannabis industry. There's a ton of opportunities. And I look at it almost like the car industry or the real estate industry where I tell people all the time, like, Goodyear doesn't make or sell cars, yet they're in the car industry, right? There's no, you can't tell somebody that, you can't tell them that they're not in the car industry, but they don't make or sell cars. So I always like to just put that out there, a little encouragement for people that you don't need the state's permission. And that's one of the first things that I said once I realized I didn't win was that I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And at the end of the day, the state can't stop me from doing what I'm doing and I don't need their permission to make money in this industry. I don't need the state's permission. I want to. I need their permission for a license. 
but I don't need their permission to make money. And so that's the way I'm going to move. I don't need them and they can't stop me. I just can't even fathom what that would be like to want to go through the steps and not only knowing all the work and effort it takes to compile an application, but to be in compliance with all the expectations to make sure that you qualify and hit all the different points, but also the financial implications of what it actually takes financially to be prepared and ready to actually apply for a license. I just think that that was such an eye-opening conversation and really the takeaway and the food for thought for me is just to continue to frame up what to prepare for when it comes time to see my state open up. So when Texas decides to open up, I know I say it often on here that I don't think Texas will do it anytime soon, but again, being observant of what's happening in these other states, just to give you that foresight to have some sort of parameters for what legalization expectations are going to be. I just think it's really realistic. So again, thank you so much to Mike for just speaking so transparently. I know it's not easy and it's probably not the super popular opinion to speak your truth because obviously there is a lot of other nuances involved. I don't want to discredit that with the state of Illinois, but I can understand the frustration that he's going through and just know that That's the takeaway. That's what we're here to learn is just to prepare ourselves better for the highs and the lows of what this industry is presenting. So that's all for this episode this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will be back next Monday with a brand new episode. But if you enjoyed this one, please reach out on social media. Let me know your thoughts. I would love to hear what you thought about Mike's story and connect with you more. So see you guys later. Bye. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.